This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, a look at the repercussions of current immigration policy in the United States. How are a thousand deportations a day affecting immigrant communities? We'll seek answers in a bit. But first, Kurt Devine is here with this week's review of news from around Latin America. Businessman Horacio Cartes won Paraguay's presidential election this week, restoring power to the nation's center-right Colorado party. Cartes beat the Liberal Party's candidate Efrain Alegre by nine percentage points. He called for national unity after accepting the presidency. For our democracy, we have this message. We want to work together for all Paraguayans. Believe me that we can. Cartes plans to reintegrate Paraguay into the regional trade bloc Mercosur as one of his first orders of business. Experts in international relations are warning that relations between the United States and Venezuela are deteriorating. The United States has yet to recognize the new government of President Nicolas Maduro. David Smildy of the Washington Office on Latin America and the University of Georgia held a briefing session this week in Washington, D.C. about the controversial Venezuelan elections. The U.S. State Department has questioned the election outcome due to the thousands of complaints of electoral fraud. It's understandable, but I think it's an unfortunate position because I think it's out of sync with the rest of the hemisphere and, more importantly, is the way that it's perceived within Venezuela. It, it's perceived as belligerent. The Venezuelan government has agreed to audit the election results, although the government stresses that is not a recount. That audit may not be finished for several weeks. Members of the Cuban dissident group, the Ladies in White, collected Europe's top human rights award this week in Brussels. The European Parliament awarded group members in 2005 for their campaign to free 75 imprisoned journalists, but the Cuban government did not allow them to leave the country to claim their prize until this year. The European Union awards the Sakharov Prize for Freedom of Thought annually to people who give their lives to promote human rights and freedom. Pope Francis unblocked a proposal to make slain Archbishop Oscar Romero of El Salvador a saint. Romero was shot to death while saying Mass in 1980. Many Catholics esteem Romero for his opposition to human rights abuses, but some question his links to the liberation theology movement. Previous popes stalled Romero's beatification, but Francis's election as the first Latin American pope makes it increasingly likely that Romero will be declared a martyr. Thousands of Mexican teachers vandalized the offices of political parties in the central state of Guerrero to protest sweeping education reform. The masked protesters smashed windows, spray-painted graffiti, and set buildings on fire, including the ruling Institutional Revolutionary Party's headquarters. The contested reforms aim to reduce the power of teachers' unions and boost government oversight of the national education system. Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto signed the reforms into law in February. The recent protests have left about 42,000 children without class. For Latin Pulse, I'm Kurt Devine. Thanks, Kurt. Our special focus today on Latin Pulse 
is on immigration and immigration policy. Our guests, Eric Hirschberg, the director of the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University, and Dennis Stinchcomb, research facilitator at the same center. Welcome to Latin Pulse. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Rick. We want to discuss immigration policy and its effects on the Salvadoran community in the U.S. Eric Hirschberg, your center has some concerns about the Obama administration's policies and their effects. Could you tell us about your research and your concerns? Uh, Yes, Rick. Um, The project that Dennis and I have been developing together with a number of faculty members here at um, American University and colleagues at the Central American University in San Salvador um, looks at a very specific dimension of immigration policy um, and the ways in which it affects the Salvadoran community here in the U.S., um, as you probably know, uh, in the context of the Obama's administra- Obama administration's efforts to emphasize its determination to, um, so to speak, control the borders, um, there has been a dramatic increase in the pace of deportations of undocumented um, immigrants. And this has had a substantial consequence for Latino communities in which many of their members are undocumented. And when you get 400,000 deportations per year, as you have under this administration, uh, it it entails substantial disruption of communities and households and families. Um, In particular, one of the things that we've focused on is that there have been, during this administration, roughly 250,000 deportations of individuals who have U.S. citizen children. Uh, And the question that we're focusing on is, what happens to U.S. citizen children when they have a parent deported? In this case, we're focusing specifically on U.S. citizen children of Salvadoran origin, concentrated in Washington, D.C., where Salvadorans are the largest immigrant population. And we're looking at what happens to those kids when they lose a parent to deportation. When many people think about the immigrant population in the U.S., um, the Latino population, they think about Mexico, and and they think about um, the impacts in Mexico. I know you've been working in that regard, too, but um, I've been surprised at the number of Salvadorans who are here, um, here um, not with, with documents, and who are part of this population. Um, that's exactly right, Rick. I mean, obviously, the Mexican population is the largest unauthorized population in the U.S., and they still do account for about three-fourths of the deportations that are happening each year. So they are the most disproportionately affected, but the Salvadorans rank up there as the second largest unauthorized population in the U.S., and being the largest immigrant group in D.C., they are feeling the brunt of many of the non-criminal deportations that are occurring in this metropolitan area. You have been working with uh, information from um, uh, Professor Luis Zaya at the University of Texas. Can you tell me a little bit about his research and and, and why it's important and, and how you're building off of that? Sure. Um, Luis Saez at the University of Texas, Austin, he's the one that's kind of coordinating a research effort along with colleagues at the University of California, Davis, and the National um, Institute of Psychology at Me- in Mexico City. And he's the one that, that, that first pretty much laid out this roadmap of how we're going to look at how deportation, 
how parental deportation affects the psychosocial functioning of children. So what we have done is essentially replicate what he is doing currently through funded by the National Institutes of Health and applied it to the Salvadoran case because we think that there's a lot of factors, contextual factors that have to do with the Salvadoran case that make them a very distinct um, population to study. What would those yeah. factors be? Well, just to, to elaborate on what Dennis was saying, um, those factors could include, first of all, the um, geographic um, distance and the lack of contiguity in borders uh, with the U.S. and Salvador. That is to say, if a parent is deported to Mexico, and that would be the population that Sias is studying, the possibilities of maintaining contact between parents and children uh, are greater than they are uh, if the parent is deported to El Salvador. That has to do with the greater ease of travel back and forth, um, the um, lesser expense of travel back and forth, and so on and so forth. In addition, we hypothesize that the circumstances of violence on the ground in El Salvador are more severe than they are in Mexico, and this has an important impact, we believe, for the psychosocial development of children um, who accompany parents um, to the parents' country of origin. Uh, thirdly, we suspect that, or we, we have many reasons to believe, and we've outlined in our research design uh, ways of measuring this, we have reason to believe that the institutional environment in El Salvador uh, that would provide for basic services, welfare, even such things as education and, and primary health care, uh, is much less developed than it is in Mexico. So the difficulties that vulnerable households face in Salvador are um, an order of magnitude more severe than those that similar communities and households face in Mexico. And obviously, over the course of our research, um, where we will be using measures very similar to those that Sias is, um and his colleagues are deploying for studying the populations of Mexican origin, uh, our expectation is that we will be able to uh, determine with some level of specificity uh, what the differences are in the impacts of deportation um, to a place like Mexico as opposed to a place like El Salvador. I'm wondering if there's a personal reason why you've decided to pursue this research. Are, are, are there any stories or other things that you've seen um, yourself that have made you want to go down this route? Well, I think that the, the principal motivation for this project is that uh, obviously, immigration reform is a pressing issue at this very moment. Uh, there are, as your listeners will know, um, discussions in the Senate in particular uh, around the um, components of a comprehensive immigration reform package that um, may well be debated in the Senate uh, during the coming months and uh, likely approved uh, over the summer. And the question becomes whether immigration reform is addressing the full range of issues that arise from what everyone agrees is a broken immigration system now. And one of the issues that we believe has not received sufficient attention is what are the consequences for American society and for Latino communities in this society of policies that involve deporting 400,000 people a year, uh, a majority of whom 
we believe, based on evidence that is provided through the Department of Homeland Security, majority of whom have not committed criminal infractions beyond the fact of being here illegally. Exactly, and I think just to add some of the numbers and give a little bit of a wider context here, I mean, that that's the cornerstone of Obama, the Obama administration's immigration enforcement policy has been that we are deporting criminals here. And I mean, even with the 410,000 deportations that we were talking about during fiscal year 2012, still only 55% of them have been convicted of felonies or misdemeanors. And the Department of Homeland Security isn't even telling us what percentage of those are simple traffic violations. So, I mean, we'll give that to the Obama administration that there's been a marked increase in the amount of deportations for criminal offenders from 33% during Bush's last year in office and during his administration now, which says 55%. But we're still talking about over 215,000 people who are being deported for just simply being here illegally. Uh, let's pursue this tangent for, for just a bit before going back to the research project itself. But I'm, I'm wondering if you feel that the political climate is such in the country that the Obama administration had to create this type of enforcement. We hear all this discussion from the Senate um, about stronger enforcement on the border, and, and we all know that statistically – um, we haven't seen this type of enforcement in 40 or 50 years on the border. So how can it be even tougher enforcement? That's what we hear Senator Rubio talking about. So I'm wondering if that is the reason why we see more than a thousand people being deported a day from this country is because of that sort of political climate. No, I think that's I think that's exactly right. I mean, that's what we're looking at. We're looking at the Obama administration basically checking off these boxes before they sit down with Congress to talk about immigration reform. I mean, we're talking two sides here, not only increased enforcement at the border, but rapidly expanding immigration enforcement activities in the interior. That's where we're getting these massive deportation numbers from. And I mean, to talk, some people are uncomfortable with the term of mass deportations, but I mean, let's let's look at the numbers. Obama administration, in his four, first four years, he's deported 1.5 million people. If he continues for that for one more year, we're talking about over 2 million people. That's more deportations between 18, nine, than, than we're, that's more people than were deported between 1892 and 1997. So, I mean, we are talking about massive deportations. And, and, and just to, to elaborate on that, if you have a um, massive demographic change of that nature, a state-induced demographic change, uh, it behooves us to study what are the ramifications mm -hmm. of such a change for American society, for the welfare of people who are living in this, in this country, be they documented or not. And in particular, we are struck by the fact that roughly 250,000 children of United, with United States citizenship, frequently children who have never been outside of this country, that has never been to the country of um, origin of their parents, uh, that 250,000 such U.S. citizen kids have a parent deported. Um, this is a profound development for a quarter of a million citizens. And we think that the society would be well served by having systematic research into what happens to a U.S. citizen kid uh, under these circumstances. Because the, if, as we suspect, there are significant implications for the psychosocial development and the educational achievement of those children, the United States is going to have to deal with that 
um, for decades to come. I'm, I'm, I'm really struck by the fact that, that we're talking about having an impact on a quarter of a million children who are citizens um, and, and what that means for policy in, in this country. Mm-hmm. And, and so um, I, I'm also struck by, by, is this research going to be looking at the impacts also in El Salvador to sending that many people back? Well, the way we've set up the study is to replicate what SIAS has done. And what, so what we're doing is taking an initial sample of 80 children. And 80 children, um, and essentially 20 of them are in what we might call a deportation limbo still in the United States. 20 of them are children who've had a parent deported to El Salvador and have remained in the Washington area with another parent. Uh, 20 of them are children who've had a parent deported and have remained in Washington area but without a parent, uh, which can be either extended family or friends or foster care. Uh, And 20 of them are children who had a parent deported and accompanied the parent to El Salvador. And there, yes, one of the things that we will be looking at is, um, but tangentially, is what the impact is on El Salvador. Certainly in a trip that Dennis and I took um, specifically focused around this project, uh, our interviews with Salvadoran government officials and with um, psychologists who've worked with immigrant populations make it abundantly clear that the society is ill-equipped to deal with this, uh, with this influx of people um, which is a, a needy population, uh, a resource-starved population that is thrust into an environment where um, there are not the reintegration services, the social services, and so on. Um, the government is able to provide roughly a day and a half of support for people upon their arrival at the airport, and that's about it. And so clearly this has a profound uh, implication in El Salvador. I think one of the things we may want to discuss, um, and you, you opened the discussion by suggesting that we could look at the implications of immigration reform for El Salvador. There are a number of things beyond the topic that we're covering in this research project that are worth mentioning. And let me just signal one because it's um, especially um, impactful for El Salvador. Since 2002, uh, when there was a severe earthquake in El Salvador, the United States has provided what they call temporary protected status to roughly 200,000 Salvadorans. And what this means is that if they pass background checks and uh, show that they are stably employed and paying taxes and have no criminal um, activity, they are able every 18 months to renew their status as documented but not permanent residents, documented with temporary protected status. And one of the very big concerns in El Salvador today, and rightly so, is that the discussion of comprehensive immigration reform in the Senate now may not address the fate of those 200,000 people who for more than a decade have shown every 18 months that they're law-abiding residents. Uh, and, and paid to renew that status. And have paid to renew that status to the tune of $600 million that Salvadoran um, um, workers, in effect, mm-hmm. have paid to the U.S. Treasury, which is more than the U.S. has provided in aid to one of its favorite governments in the region. Um, that $600 million that Salvadorans have transferred in the form of renewal fees to um, the American government, that it's not clear that these people are going to have their status regularized. And El Salvador is a country that has close to a third of its population in the United States. Um, 
and that does not have the capacity to provide employment or opportunities, uh, even for those Salvadorans who remain in the country. And so the prospects of not having normalized the circumstance of this substantial population, 200,000 people, uh, are really quite severe for that country. Let's go over those other points in a moment. Eric Hirschberg from the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University and Dennis Stinchcomb, research facilitator at the same center. Our guest today on Latin Pulse will come back in a moment. A man is found guilty of trafficking Brazilian women to the UK to make them work as prostitutes. The head of an international trafficking network is jailed in Romania and three people are sent to prison in America for operating a Mexican baby smuggling ring. Human traffickers trick and deceive their victims, but by joining forces we can bring these criminals to justice. Support the United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking, ungift.org. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Our guest today, Eric Hirschberg, the director of the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University, and Dennis Stinchcomb, a research facilitator at the same facility, at the same research center. And and we're talking about immigration and an immigration project that the two of you are are launching um, dealing with El Salvador. When we left off, we talked about some of the impact of current policy and current policy discussion on El Salvador, and we left a couple of points on the table. So, Eric, I don't know if you want to pick those up or not. Well, I would just emphasize that beyond the question that we're looking at in our research project regarding the health implications of mass deportations, um, there are, I think, two things that are particularly important for the Salvadoran um, perspective on the immigration reform debate. One of them is what I just mentioned regarding the temporary protected status. Um, what will be the opportunities for normalization of status and ultimately a path to citizenship for the roughly 200,000 Salvadorans who are here with temporary protected status? And also, um, during a period which it appears will be at least a ballpark 10 years, during which people will be in a, um, a liminal status between undocumented and eventual citizenship, will the temporary protected status um, population continue to have to pay the U.S. Treasury $500 every 18 months in order to continue their status? I mean, if you add that up over a 10-year period, um, it's a further subsidy from um, a, developed con- a developing country population into the U.S. Treasury, which is really a reverse um, resource flow. Um, beyond that, I think the principal question for El Salvador uh, is the ease with which undocumented migrants in the United States uh, will have their status regularized and ultimately be placed on a path to citizenship because El Salvador relies on migrants in the United States um, for a significant portion of national income. Uh, Roughly 17% of GDP consists of remittances from the United States, from migrants who are in the the United States back to El Salvador. And the more um, vulnerable that population, the more difficult it is for that population to have the incomes necessary to survive in the United States and send resources back. We've talked on this program in the past few months uh, about temporary protected status with diplomats from El Salvador. And and we've also talked about um, how immigration policy has affected the gang population in both the United States and in El Salvador. And and so I'm wondering, you've used the word, both of you have used the term 
vulnerable households. And I'm wondering if, if what we're really talking about sometimes here is U.S. immigration policy that has been initiating some of this atmosphere that has pushed people into the gang lifestyle. No, I think there's no doubt about that. I mean, one of the things that we're definitely going to be looking at in the study that we're doing is the levels of violence that children are exposed to. And I mean, the population that we're looking at is 10 to 14 initially. So, I mean, we're starting to hit those years where gang involvement is going to be a serious, a serious question about whether, you know, I mean, there's no question about it. When you have unstable families and you're missing parents, that there's going to be uh, you know, a draw, more of a draw, a draw toward the community that's offered in a gang, both in the U.S. and Salvador. Earlier, Eric Hirschberg mentioned the statistics that the fear is that there is greater fear for the Salvadoran immigrants in this particular situation rather than Mexican immigrants, not that that violence is not a concern in Mexico. But, but we've recently talked about um, the violence statistics in, in El Salvador decreasing bet- because of the gang truce. So I'm, I'm wondering if, if Mexico isn't the bigger concern or if they're of equal concern. Can you give us some thoughts about that? Well, I mean, I think both societies suffer from endemic violence. Um, both societies um, uh, demonstrate, the experience of both societies demonstrates that when there is an absence of opportunities uh, for young people um, to participate in society, um, to be incorporated into labor markets, to have educational opportunities, and so on and so forth, um, that combined with an environment of judicial weakness, of um, institutional uh, decay or absence uh, with regard to issues of crime and impunity. Um, you put those things together, it's a very volatile combination. Um, having said that, um, the levels of violence, the levels of illicit activity in El Salvador are um, proportionally higher than they are in Mexico. The gang truce that you refer to is a very interesting development in El Salvador. It's something that a number of researchers here at AU have been analyzing. Um, and the sense that we get from criminologists who study gang truces uh, more generally, um, that is to say not only in the Salvadoran experience but um, comparatively around the world, is that these tend to be relatively short-lived and they often culminate in a consolidation of criminal networks uh, which, upon breakdown of the truce, become, um, um, create a circumstance of more pervasive violence than there was before. The Salvadoran truce is particularly interesting because it has now lasted a full year, uh, and it has reduced homicide rates uh, substantially, cut them roughly by half. Having said that, it's not clear, um, in fact, it appears clear that there has not been a decline in the gang activity as measured in things like extortion, Uh, and so on. And so this would suggest that what is taking place in El Salvador may very well be a consolidation of gang activity. I would say one other thing about the Salvadoran truce. Um, Yes, we see a decline in homicides by roughly 50%. Um, And typically that's being attributed to a 
reduction in the frequency of killings by gang members. There's another hypothesis that hasn't been uh, addressed sufficiently, I think, which is that it also involves a decline in the number of homicides by the security forces. And the question then becomes whether the security forces are part of the gang truce. And that's a very troubling um, reflection. And and just uh, one other thing real quick, um, just thinking about this, I don't want to open up another, a different can of worms, but there's also the thought about what this means for the future of U.S. politics when you have a, such a large Latino electorate. Um, I think this kind of research is important to point out what is going on. I mean, the Hispanic vote was overwhelmingly in favor of Obama, as we know. But the research, a recent survey done by the Pew Research Center the Pew Hispanic Center pointed out that still 41% of Latinos aren't aware that the deportations are happening at a much faster rate than under previous administrations. So I think that's a, also an important point to throw out there, too. Thank you, Dennis Dinchcombe, research facilitator at the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University, and also Eric Hirschberg, the director at that center at American University. Thank you, gentlemen, for being our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thanks, Rick. Thanks. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes and Facebook. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to respond to this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Kurt Devine and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2013, Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>